The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, January the 8th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm joined in studio by our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly. How's the year been for you so far, Fia? Fantastic. About to get better, I suspect. <laughs> and in a couple of minutes' time, we're going to be joined by our col- columnist, uh, Newton Emerson. But first, Fia, I wanted to ask you about this weird fiasco over the government plans, which have now been deferred for a commemoration of the Royal Irish Constabulary and the Dublin Metropolitan Police. But, we probably have some listeners who aren't up to speed on this, particularly those who don't live in Ireland. So just to explain that successive governments have been conducting a whole decade of commemorations of the turbulent political events which happened in Ireland between 1913 and 1923 and which led eventually to the establishment of this state. And in some cases, the meaning of many of those events and the role of the individuals and the organisations which were involved remains contentious to this day. But up until now, Fick, this process has been remarkably free of rancour or division. That all changed in the last week. Yeah, this commemoration for the RIC and the DMP uh, was scheduled to take place next week in Dublin Castle and it had been planned for some time. We ran a story on it ourselves on New Year's Day and the day after in the newspaper and I I think what happened was the consultation group that the state had basically set up to advise it on commemorations, you know, various eminent historians, just Dermot Ferreter, Morris Manning were part of it, kind of indicated that it should, the state perhaps should look at some way of, you know, marking the place in history of Irish men who served in the RIC and the DMP, you know, the way I think it's characterised by Fergal Keane in this morning's Irish Times is the way I think it was envisaged that these were people who weren't necessarily, they just found themselves on the wrong side of history, if you like, from the Irish nationalist perspective. Mm. So what happened then it went to government and the consultation group seems to have washed its hands of what has happened since, which is the the, the government decided to organise what I understand was initially a private event in Dublin Castle next week, which would be attended by relatives of those. There's a, a group called HARP, which was set up to basically acknowledge the place and history of these individuals. Because many, many families across Ireland would have had... Great grandfathers yeah, and so in the in, in the RIC it's, or the It's DNA. legion. Like you know, I I was struck by Fergal Keane's piece this morning. He spoke about you know his his uh, his his great grandfather and his grandfather. Like my my own uh, great grandmother was in Cumannamon. Her father was an RIC man. So that is that is like you know common enough around Ireland. But what happened was um, this event it probably wasn't considered given enough consideration as it perhaps warranted that the I suppose political blind spots weren't uh, identified and dealt with. So you suddenly had this, you know, mixing in of the blackened hands and the auxiliaries and these claims that the state were commemorating the blackened hands and the auxiliaries. They weren't. It was an RIC, Just to be clear again, for those listeners who aren't up to speed, the blackened hands were the paramilitary force which was sent in to augment the RIC as the violence got more extreme in in 1920 and the auxiliaries were the same. Yeah, so they were actually part of these organisations historically at that stage in history. Yes, but it, it, the government didn't succeed in disentangling their intent with what it suddenly became in this public debate, and it suddenly became this charge that the government and the state were commemorating the black and tans and the auxiliaries, which they obviously very strenuously deny. 
that was the first mistake that it wasn't considered fully in the round and perhaps maybe given a more a, a different method like you know I think Dermot Ferret and others said they envisaged a seminar where people would discuss the place of policing in you know Ireland in the 19th century etc 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 and then it was initially supposed to be a private event but invitations were issued in the last two weeks to Cahir League and mayors of local authorities around the country now, since the local elections last year, uh, Fianna Fáil is in charge of a lot of, mer- of uh, councils around the country. They have placed their general election candidates as mayors in some of those. So Cahill Crow, the mayor of Clare, who was the first one to say that he wouldn't be attending this, is their candidate in the general election. Paul McAuliffe, who's the Lord Mayor of Dublin, is their candidate in the general election as well. So you can see what's going to happen. Um, these uh, mayors said that they didn't feel comfortable with this event. And once that happened, it snowballed into being a Fianna Fáil Sinn Féin issue to the Labour Party having objections to it lapping at the shores of the government itself with the Independent Alliance saying it objected and then government backbenchers and it got to a stage yesterday where you were watching your uh, the clock for the inevitable U-turn and it duly came at six o'clock on the news. Now our colleague uh, Ronan McGreevy who's our kind of expert on the decade of centenaries he has a piece in today's paper sort of charting the line of what you've described there and the fact that you know there was a private event which uh, Charlie Flanagan attended a few months ago which probably led ultimately to this more, more public event but it, it does all seem rather politically inept. I did a lot of the coverage of the of the 1916 um, commemorations which took place f- nearly four years ago now and they were very well thought out and some of the potential difficulties about you know commemorating the deaths of British soldiers during the during the rising were kind of were handled quite well. It seemed like a lot of thought had been put into the potential mm. you know minefields for want of a better word you know mm. among those not so with this it's a bit it's a bit of a mess yeah perhaps maybe that there was attention given to those previous stages of the decade of commemorations as you say and then attention has been given to the next stage which is the civil war mm. so Michael D. Higgins when he was re-elected as president last year you know flagged this up and said there are going to be events during the next few years as part of the decade of commemorations where people may feel uncomfortable people may not even want to commemorate certain instances and I think everybody assumed that the civil war and rem- remembering what happened in the Civil War would be difficult. And perhaps the War of Independence and the troubles within that were a particular blind spot. And maybe this is where this fell down. Also, I think the government probably didn't explain the position well enough. Like this really, I think, flared up since the weekend. And then you had a situation where John Bruton was more or less Marriott Finnegale representative on the Clare Byrne show on Monday night um, saying that the Black and Tans were humans too and they had families too. Now... That is not, like John Bruton comes from a very uh, definitive tradition within the Fine Gael, the Remonite tradition. He has his own views and things. They are at odds with some in Fine Gael, but also chime a lot of views in Fine Gael. But to have him out, I think, more or less explain the government position was kind of symptomatic of the way this was treated by government. They didn't see it as serious enough until yesterday when they realised they had to change course. Like, bear in mind, the teacher was tweeting defence of their approach as early as yesterday morning or sorry as late as yesterday morning before they had to change course How serious is it uh, for Fine Gael? I think it's one of those things that I'll probably blow over um, it was a matter of dealing with it and I'd imagine that the, the thoughts in government buildings were yesterday afternoon this is a problem we don't need to have at this particular time uh, will we be still talking about it when the general election is called I doubt it uh, I think it's just one of those things that's poorly handled and probably will drift away into into the mists well, Newton Emerson joins us now. Newton, you cover events north of the border. Now, of course, uh, in that part of Ireland, the RIC was the police force there as well in the in in 1920. Is there much interest in this north of the border? 
Well, there is now, yes. Uh, this is something that really shouldn't have been any of our business, certainly from a unionist perspective. It's really not about the RIC, but about the uh, about the context of the Civil War, or sorry, the, the War of Independence, which isn't something we perceive to have happened up here. There was some violence in the North during that period, but it's not seen as, as continuous with, with the Civil War. Um, and uh, really, this was the Republic commemorating its its own its own birth on its own territory and uh, disputes among its own people. However, it was made very clear from government statements that this was meant to be about unionists in the modern day. The uh, the government repeatedly said that this was about demonstrating respect for all traditions on our island, and this was seen essentially as a as a proxy issue of indicating an ability to. To uh, to respect unionists and their history, and uh, you know that that message has now been very clearly received. Uh, it, it seems from a unionist perspective that a, a great tide of, of anti-British sentiment has been unleashed, and uh, I mean obviously opinions are very uh, divided and complex in the Republic. But when people say, for example, that, you know, don't worry, it's got nothing to do with unionists. It's just about the British. Well, that doesn't, guess what? That doesn't really make it any better. Well, in uh, fact, is it actually, it's actually the contrary of that in some ways, isn't it? Is that, you know, as I said earlier, the 1916 commemorations, after quite a long process of a kind of reinterrogation of Irish involvement in the First World War and the British Armed Forces, you know, there was, they went pretty smoothly in terms of recognising, you know, that that there were, there were casualties on both sides and that, you know, the dead should be mourned on all sides. That One of the things that gives this a bit more edge, it seems to me, is that there are lots of Irish people, the majority of people in the RIC and, and certainly in the DMP, they were Irish. Yes, which is why unionists would probably have ignored it had it not been flagged up uh, so repeatedly as, uh, as as a kind of indicator about what uh, uh, you know a united Ireland might be like and about how respect might be might be shown in that in that scenario, which is is very much the the, the message that was received up here, and so the uh, you know the, the the scale of the backlash is quite sobering. Some unionists are rather gleefully saying, "I told you so." A united Ireland would obviously be a nightmare, but others are genuinely quite alarmed at the sort of language and uh, an emotion that has that has been revealed. Uh, it's uh, I mean it, it, it's quite clear that that the Republic has not come to terms with its British history. Can I put a contrary view on this to you, to you, Fiac, and maybe to you, Newton, as well, which is that we had all these lovely commemorations and, in some cases, celebrations uh, in, in, in 2016 in particular, and there was all this stuff which Irish people really liked doing, self-congratulation about how we'd put the past behind yeah. us or reconciled ourselves to it, and everything was lovely and there were nice concerts and everybody was hugging each other. And that doesn't actually shed a lot of light on what really happened. These were dark turbulent times, uh, people died, people suffered. Um, and actually, sometimes it's not a bad idea to have a fight about these things, about a, a real argument about what these things actually mean. Well, yeah, well yes, certainly. Uh, I think that a lot of people have had an education. Um, the, the RIC is uh, has gone from historical memory in Northern Ireland. We, we, we don't see ourselves, of course, as having, as having created a new country. There's just a continuum of history. Um, and so the, the, you know, this is shown a light on that. But when you refer back to 1916, the 1916 commemorations, you need to remember that unionists didn't attend, and nor did the Alliance Party, which said that it didn't want to commemorate an act of violent insurrection. We have, of course, our own creation myth 
uh, that parallels 1916 here with the UVF gun running of 1912. And there were no official commemorations for that. Loyalists had to organize their own. So we didn't actually uh, all hold hands and congratulate ourselves in that period. We, uh, we maintained a very, uh, you know, a, a very frosty distinction between our two histories. Speaking of frostiness, um, there still seems to be plenty of frostiness between the the two main parties in Northern Ireland in terms of the negotiations which were going on. The Simon Coveney, the foreign, our foreign minister, and um, Julian Smith, the Northern Secretary, have indicated they're going to be publishing a document of some sort later today, which is their vision of what's needed to get the uh, default government back up and running. Uh, is this all just posturing? Is there going to be we're we going to get a deal in the next few days in advance of the deadline next week? Well, I think that um, there was apparently a shouting match at talks earlier in this week between the party leaders and the expression all over bar the shouting springs to mm-hmm. mind. But mm-hmm. as, as as the deal has effectively been available in, 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 in detailed form for weeks, spending these last few weeks shouting is quite dangerous. I think that, uh, the, the, I mean, the DUP has been foot dragging, playing a classic game of storm and brinkmanship to see if it can get anything out of the uh, out of these talks in the last few days. In, in, in the vacuum and the, the exhaustion amongst other parties, there is a danger that that could kick off arguments that, that, that won't be tamped down in time for next Monday, which is, which is the statutory deadline. Uh, I mean, these aren't, uh, you know, these deadlines aren't, they're not the laws of the universe. They can be moved, of course, but this one really needs to stick or needs to be taken seriously if if we're not to to move into a completely different gear of dealing with uh, with our political problems here. Sinn Féin has indicated uh, yesterday, in fact, that if this deadline is shifted, they're you know they're in despair about the future of devolution entirely. I mean, it's a kind of an absurd dynamic, isn't it? If everybody knows the deal is there, or the, but they just have to be seen to walk out with some small win, which is largely procedural in some form or another. And then you just have this clock ticking down. So all they can do is shout at each other because that's what they like doing if given the opportunity, isn't it? Yes. And, and the background to this all is that there's always been an asymmetry to the uh, to the Stormont crisis over the past three years. Sinn Féin has had a list of demands which the DUP is prepared to meet. The DUP's problem is it's never known what to ask for in return. It was uh, characterised by its former finance minister, Simon Hamilton, as as a 10-0 win. And, and how would they try and talk that down? He said if they could even get it to a 5-0 win, it might not look as bad. But the only idea they've ever been able to come up with is matching Irish language legislation with Ulster Scots legislation, which even unionists don't take seriously. So that's never gone down as a, as a particularly good deal. Uh, and and so the DUP goes into these talks, has gone into these talks with that balance problem still outstanding. I, I think that a lot of the talk there's been over the petition of concern veto mechanism has been about simply trying to get some last minute score that they can uh, that they can set off uh, uh, against the, the the large number of concessions they need to make. And in relation to the the Irish Language Act, which seems to be the you know the, the main issue, is most of that symbolic or is it are, are there legitimate concerns on the unionist side that it's imposing something which shouldn't be imposed upon people who don't want it there are legitimate concerns about an Irish language act in general and that was uh, I mean uh, th- there's been no problem with anyone uh, anyone saying that in fact uh, the Irish language main Irish language lobby group here yesterday put out a statement saying you know legitimate issues about an Irish language act are, are you know can be discussed things such as 
in the initial Sinn Féin proposal, job quotas for public sector jobs for Irish language speakers, uh, a commissioner with enforcement powers that included a criminal offence of non-cooperation. When all these things went into the initial proposal, I think it was entirely legitimate to say, you know, is this is this permissible in a society such as ours? Will it work? In Wales, for example, the, the model we're meant to look at under the St Andrews Agreement, the powers of the language commissioner there have been a, a continuous problem. They've actually been scaled back because they've been seen not to work. They've been seen to be counterproductive. So, uh, you know, that debate is legitimate, but we haven't really had that kind of debate. It hasn't taken place in the open. Sinn Féin and the DUP agreed a draft deal to revive Stormont in 2018 that included... Uh, proposals for an Irish language act that I don't think any reasonable person could have been able to object to. Uh, however, you know, we haven't continued to flesh that out. The DUP didn't sell it. They still haven't made any attempt to sell it. They're still presenting everything in terms of this 10-0 win. And can I, can, can sorry, I ask, Fierke, yeah. Can I ask Newton a question? Um, um, just touch on the point of the DUP selling it um, to their own supporters. Someone I spoke to in, in Sinn Féin a couple of months ago characterised the way they sell what they're about to do to their supporters that they continually feed back to their supporters and their groups and associated like like Conor Nagela for example what they're going to do and they prepare the ground and then they land whatever deal it is upon their base relatively suddenly so they've had some sort of consultation but they also have very little time to object to the finalised detail and the way it was characterised was that the DUP and Arlene Foster particularly not necessarily DUP as a whole were quite poor at that and they didn't bring people along with them the whole way and then were reluctant to publish the deal when it was done. So they're about reluctant to consult and reluctant to bounce. Is that a fair assessment? I just always wanted to ask that question. Oh, that's absolutely correct. The DUP salesmanship didn't even extend in 2018 to its own party where uh, they had a very small negotiating team of, I think, just seven people. Uh, and when they struck the, the deal and presented it to uh, to their own party colleagues, uh, there was a massive backlash. Then, uh, then word leaked to the Orange Order. There was another backlash. Uh, but cru- crucially, at that point, <clears throat> they decided not to press ahead. And uh, uh, while everything you said there is correct, there is a there's a further detail to it, which is that Sinn Féin is prepared to take a hit at mm. the end of this process. The deal that reached in 2018 would not have satisfied uh, the, the, uh, lobbyists uh, at all. For example, it completely omitted the issue of Irish language signage which is a very controversial issue, one that, uh, that, that, has, that has sufficient problems for even the Alliance Party, which supports an Irish Language Act, to, to, to want no signage included. But that's, a, that's a, an absolutely crucial issue for the Irish language lobby. And Sinn Féin was prepared to tell them, well, you know, you're just not going to get everything you want. Uh, too bad. And that's not something that the DUP is ever prepared to say to the Orange Order to its uh, to its religious base. It, it, never, it, it never seems to turn around and say, you know, Suck it up, guys. This is the best you're going to manage. And uh, I don't, still don't see any sign of them being psychologically capable of doing that. Have they, have, they, have they improved their consultation in this process? Is there any evidence of them feeding back to their supporters what's going on? Or is it still as close as it was the last time? Zero evidence of that. None whatsoever. And bear in mind, they've now had uh, one year and 11 months since that 2018 deal to uh, when everybody knew it was coming back again and it was a good deal from a unionist perspective. They've had all that time to say, you know, we'd be lucky if we get this again. 
they haven't. So what's going on with that? Is that some sort of innate structural difficulty with the DUP as a political <coughs> organisation? You had an interesting column last week about, you know, the, the structures of the post-Good Friday Agreement settlement and the way in which the, I suppose, the extremes on the green and orange side were, were brought in in the form of the DUP and Sinn Féin. And that maybe that might happen again with, a, you know, potential change in leadership you were, you were musing on last week. In, in my opinion, we'd be lucky if the DUP went for a more hardline leader, because at least a hardline leader might be prepared to bang hardline heads together. But that is, that is uh, that, that's, only, that's only a smaller problem within the, 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 the bigger structural flaw within the DUP, which is that it is a small, uh, very small party. It has uh, only 2,000 uh, members, which it doesn't consult in any way. They have no, no say whatsoever in, in the party. They don't get to elect leaders, for example. Leadership elections uh, are all conducted within the elected members only. That's the smallest selectorate of any UK party. Uh, the, uh, the, the party itself uh, conducts negotiations with tiny leadership teams. It has a back office team of small, a small back office team of all powerful advisors that was exposed by the renewable heat incentive scandal. They actually call the shots. Even their own high level representatives are terrified of them. And so decisions tend to be landed on on even the inner core of the party. Uh, and that that is what repeatedly causes these problems. Having said all that, there are strong incentives, I mean, for Sinn Féin, as you've said, but also for the DUP to get the thing up and running again, aren't there? Oh, uh, my goodness, yes. The the DUP needs this back, as far as I can see, much more badly than, than Sinn Féin does. Sinn Féin, I think, has a short-term interest in, a, in, uh, in appearing to be uh, an active partner of government ahead of an election in the Republic. But the DUP needs Stormont back permanently as its only plausible power base now that it's lost its its fluke influence in Westminster and will never be welcomed back there again. Um, it doesn't really have the kind of council power bases it used to have. It's stormant or nothing for the DUP. And also, I, I think, for Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland must demonstrate that it has some capability to govern itself, to have, uh, to have any future. The stakes couldn't be higher for unionism. And so for the, for the DUP to be dragging its feet over this, is a, it, it's an extraordinary sign of its inability to, to back down. Fia, what happens if there isn't an agreement by this deadline? This, this is a slightly movable deadline, I think, no matter what's said, isn't it? As Newton said, you know, we have had deadlines move in the past, but mm. the British government has been quite clear that there will be fresh assembly elections if the deadline isn't met. And I think... What you said is accurate. You know, you have to have a firm deadline at one stage, although they're not common in Northern Ireland at all. That this January 13th deadline has been flagged for weeks now, since before Christmas. All parties to the talks say a deal is there to be reached and it's just a matter of bringing everybody on side. So I think it will be a huge blow to the credibility of Stormont yet again, and perhaps even bigger than once we've seen in recent years, if they couldn't get this done by January 13th. Uh, Newton, if there were an election, the, the general election results were very striking. Um, and the decline in the vote of the DUP, and even more in Sinn Féin, there were, you know, the rise of alliance, just a, a range of very interesting uh, results across Northern Ireland, including the resurgence of, of the SDLP, particularly in, in, in foil. Um, would an election be a good thing, do you think, for the political dispensation in the North at the moment? Well, the threat of an election is certainly a good thing. And this is uh, this is uh, perhaps uh, even more so than an election in the Republic. This is the reason Sinn Féin wants back into Stormont. Uh, another election to the assembly w- w- would harm it most of all. Although it appears that uh, it, it's, it is unionist voters in the main that are switching to alliance, the uh, a, a mathematical fluke of the multi-seat constituencies here. I mean, if this alliance surge, surge continued in an assembly election, Sinn Féin would lose perhaps a quarter of its seats, while the DUP might only lose one or two. Uh, 
And uh, <clears throat> that, that SDLP resurgence also, that might be a particular fluke of the Westminster election and the pacts, the anti-Brexit pacts that it, that it caused. However, uh, the, Sinn Féin is extremely sensitive about any idea that the SDLP might come back might be revived. They thought they'd killed it off, and now it appears to have bounced back. They really don't want that at all. Sinn Féin, like a shark, must always be seen to keep moving forward. It doesn't really have anything else to do. Uh, so, in, in fact, in its civic nationalist strategy, moving forward while, while swallowing everything else up was, hmm. was really all, all the vision it offered to nationalism. So if that seems to go into reverse, it could sink pretty quickly. And the, the alliance surge we've had over the past three elections in the past year uh, occurred over three different kinds of elections local, European, and Westminster. The Westminster one most dramatic of all because first past the post, unlike PR elections and the other two elections, really would would have been expected to crush alliance. It's a, it's a winner-takes-all polarizing system. And yet voters continued to uh, to flock to alliance, even knowing in most constituencies it was a lost cause. They badly wanted to send that signal even against their own constitutional short-term interest. Does that, say, mean, does that mean it was a protest vote, you know, in other words, that it might return to, from, from whence it came? Uh, no, no, it's not, because after three elections of that kind, and Alliance says it mainly appears to be new voters coming through rather than switchers that they can see, it, it, it is most definitely a persistent, determined trend. And it all builds up to an assembly election. All these elections over the past year were really about Stormont about getting back to Stormont. And if uh, if the electorate here has an actual assembly election with proportional representation and all those Stormont issues in front of it, I think that the, uh, the, the centrist surge and the switch away from the two larger parties would accelerate dramatically again. Fiak, I mean, in a couple of minutes, we're going to talk about the prospects of when a general election is going to happen in the, in the Republic. But um, first of all, elections north and south, is that a possibility within a few weeks of each other? I think the election in the South is probably dependent on what happens in the North. So if the North institutions are back up and running, I'm not saying it will hold it back forever. I think the process, the prospect of a rapid general election in the South is, you know, greatly enhanced if there is a deal in storm in the next few days, if the Taoiseach and Boris Johnson arrive in Belfast to sign off on whatever the parties agree, I think then the way is clear for a general election. But there is going to be a general election in the South in the next eight, 12 weeks. Um, as we've just discussed, if the talks in the North fail, there will be an election in Northern Ireland as well. So it is it is quite possible that in the next four four months we can have elections on both sides of the border, yeah. I mean, I suppose, you know, uh, Newton, the, the, we keep referring to them as the two main parties, Sinn Féin and the DUP, but even between the two of them, as per the last election, they barely account for just slightly over 50% of, of the overall vote. And where do the other parties now stand on going into an executive should one be reconstituted? Well, this is the, the, the great issue of opposition. Stormont only evolved a formal opposition in 2016, just a, <clears throat> pardon me, a year before it collapsed. And uh, the DUP certainly believes that that's part of the reason why it collapsed. They, they think that Sinn Féin did not like the idea of the SDLP scrutinising it from the uh, from the Assembly, particularly over issues such as welfare reform. On, on the other hand, of course, uh, m- many civil servants, um, <coughs> pardon, believe uh, and, uh, and others believe that the uh, that the scrutiny of the RHI scandal by the opposition was what made life impossible for the DUP. So both parties are very, very unwilling, Sinn Féin in particular, it must be said, to have a, a, a new opposition at Stormont. Now, the UUP is completely split down the middle as usual, about whether to go into opposition again. Uh, the SDLP 
is keeping its cards close to its chest. Alliance definitely would not want to go into opposition. Uh, they were bounced into it last time. They tried playing hardball in negotiations to get into the executive and the DUP and Sinn Féin called their bluff. So that, that won't happen again. So I think that you might not have quite as much of an opposition as you had last time. And we, we, we never quite really bedded in the idea of an opposition because we have a power sharing executive. People expected a power sharing opposition. They expected, and in fact, the, the new law in the opposition created this idea of a deputy, of a first and deputy opposition leader. And, uh, and the idea that it must be the UUP and the SDLP. The UUP leader at the time, Mike Nesbitt, even said, vote might get Colum. That's Colum Eastwood, the SDLP leader. Uh, Eastwood declined to reciprocate. <laughs> he clearly didn't think that was a vote winner for him. And it, it didn't turn out to be a vote winner for Nesbitt either. So uh, it, it's all a bit up in the air about an opposition. However, I think that people will be very disappointed if we don't get an effective opposition coming back into Stormont. The, the public, in my view, doesn't buy this idea uh, up at Stormont that we must have all parties in taking the power available to them and and and, and trying to, to work as best they can in the executive. People like the idea of, a, of, a, of an approach to normal politics, as we perceive it. Our idea of that is Westminster politics, frankly, where there is a government and an opposition. That's, that's what people... That's what people want and expect Stormont to evolve into in the longer term. And in terms of that evolution, just a final question there. I mean, you mentioned earlier on potential haggling over details about the petition of consent and all that. Does all this not illustrate the fact that the the structures agreed in 1998 and then developed further at St. Andrews, they're kind of they're getting more and more baroque and strange and in terms of their actual outcomes and that perhaps they're not going to work in the long term? Well, they were never envisaged to work in the long term. The Good Friday Agreement had a very fundamental review built into it that was meant to take place within a couple of years of that agreement being signed. Uh, Stormont collapsed instead. And, uh, you know, reviews of the executive and assembly are ongoing constantly. There's even one going on at the minute. So this ugly scaffolding, as the SDLP once described it, is always meant to come down and be reformed. But yes, Baroque is a wonderful word to describe what has happened instead. And what St. Andrews showed is how apparently minor rule changes have enormous repercussions. The DUP and Sinn Féin at St Andrews tweaked the rules slightly uh, on appointing first and deputy first ministers just to spare their own blushes. It used to be the whole assembly, all parties had to, to vote for a joint ticket of first and deputy first ministers, all wonderful holding hands together consensus. Uh, the DP and Sinn Féin changed that to a competition over who would be the largest party. Uh, just a tiny little rule change, a rubber stamp applied to the Northern Ireland Act. And 10 years later, we have this uh, you know, do or die battle to be uh, for the entirely symbolic post of first minister, first and deputy first ministers of the same power. And yet this has turned into a proxy for the future of the union. And and that, that indicates that just that one tiny little tweak. So God knows what tweaks coming down the line in the next week or so will mean in the years ahead. Great. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us. You're listening to the Irish Times. Sophia, as you said, bar things really not working in Northern Ireland, I think it's fair to say that you think we're going to have an election sooner rather than later. Um, I, yes, I do think that we are facing into the next couple of weeks the possibility of an election. I would probably say at this stage it's a, it's a likelihood that we're facing a general election. The dissolution of this doll in the next couple of weeks. It's it's kind of funny how everything has changed. Um, I think when the Taoiseach said over before the Christmas break that he wanted Micheál Martin to not only abstain, but in some instances perhaps vote or nominate some of his CDs to vote for the government, I think people kind of 
didn't pay pay much attention to it because it was the middle of Christmas and you know nobody's paying attention to news. And then suddenly it's resurfaced this week as a demand. Michal Martin said that is not something he can possibly agree to. The two men are to meet. Uh, so just to say that was an unrealistic demand. Wasn't of course, it? yeah. Like there is no way that Michal Martin can isolate one of his TDs and say sorry. You know, you're going to have to vote with the government now and then, or else bring his entire party on board to vote with the government when they're in the dying days of, of this doll. It's an unrealistic uh, demand. It's knowingly unrealistic. Um, it's, it's the kind of assumption, it's just kind of permeated most things now is that there is going to be an election probably sometime in February. We could be totally wrong, have been wrong many times before that they, the two party leaders could agree to keep this going till April, but... There's almost like a self kind of perpetuating momentum now. It's behind a bit it. like the First World War yes, thing of mobilisation. The trains, the yes, trains, the trains are, are the trains border. are in motion. Um, you know, a couple of TDs in, in in both parties saying that like the public are now ready for it. That like in the last two or three years we've had this kind of tiring debate about elections. The public have kind of looked and said, why are we having it now? You know what are we doing now? What are you coming to us now for? And now they say the public knows that this doll is coming to its end. And there is a human sense from politicians who have been in like this kind of suspended limbo for years of just do it, just get it out of the way. And party leaders are not deaf to that sometimes. They know when the end has come. And what about that seasonal thing we hear all the time that, you know, Parties prefer to have an election in the spring or the summer. Uh, the Taoiseachs prefer to call it in May. Bertie Ahern certainly did. Yeah, that's an argument. And people in Fine Gael, at the very top of Fine Gael, have insisted for years that they would likely have record to be out canvassing in April, May, sunshine. May was their preference because they felt it would be good for him to get out and, 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 and meet people. And, you know, we've sp- spoken on this podcast before about the celebrity factor with him. People flocked him because he selfies, etc. That is definitely there. But, you know, there was a discussion at this at the Fine Gael pre-cabinet meeting before Christmas and they kind of kicked around the winter election and, you know, people who were there said it was notable that the chief of staff Brian Murphy pointed out that actually over the last six elections three have been in winter 92 was November 11 was uh, was February and 16 was February and the, those three Bertie Ahern elections if you like 97, 2002 2007 were all summer so it's not like we've the idea of a summer election has become accepted but the that it's not necessarily the norm that we have always had Although, summer elections Although my mind back there the three winter elections also big losses for the governing party not necessarily. The, 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 the governing party, yes, but from a mm-hmm. Fine Gael perspective, obviously 11 was different. Mm-hmm. This is a debate that's going on and I know there are people looking at, you know, whether studies about whether it actually affects, you know, people's attitudes. And like, bear in mind the last time, it wasn't, you know, it's always looked back and people kind of put their own viewpoint on what has happened and it's kind of like, you know, Fine Gael, they would have done well if they went in, 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 in November. Their campaign was poor the last time. There's no getting away from that. The campaign was poor. The campaign was a huge element of the poor performance of the party the last time. They would have been saying, let's keep the recovery going in November 2015 as they were in February 2016. So those are the issues. And, you know, the Taoiseach and the people around him now are known to be highly critical of that campaign. They seem to have learned the lesson. So it's perhaps not the restraining factor it once was, Um Look, again, he, he he is making this decision on his own. It's his decision to make and he's not telling any, anybody as far as I can see. Could you lay out for me then the potential time frame scenario as it runs from, from now into a, a February election I presume we're talking about? Yeah. Well, you know, speaking to a couple of people in the last few days who have been engaging with Tatish privately over the last couple of weeks, obviously he was in India on a personal trip. Um, you know, he's not saying, he's not giving his intentions away, but he did 
has told people that he would like to see Stormont sorted uh, before any election. And, you know, I think it's kind of the usual old coffee talk of what if he goes on this day, what if he goes on that day. But there are a couple of bodies of opinions in, in Fine Gael. One is that the, the doll won't come back next week if the, the deadline that we've spoken of is the 13th. That's that's Monday, the doll is back in the 15th. If Stormont is back up and running, Tish and Boris Johnson fly in, you know, Pictures and the steps of a of the uh, of Stormont meeting, perhaps on the future British Irish relations, you know, talk about Brexit, the next steps, and then the Taoiseach says, "Well, I myself and Michal Martin are an impasse, therefore this doll is concluded, and I'm, I'm, I'm gone." And in that situation, some people are speculating the seventh, but I still think that's probably a bit early. Other people are saying he may leave it a week and go the fourteenth. But take your pick of any Friday, really. You know, you're looking at the seventh, the fourteenth, the twenty-first, mm-hmm. the twenty-eighth. Fianna Fáil or Dáis is due to ha- fall on the weekend of the fourteenth and fifteenth of February. So you can imagine that will fall by the wayside if there's an election. Um, so it's that type of, of 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 time frame you're looking at. And the other thing that's feeding into it is this idea that they can't carry the doll if there's a motion, no conference. So the schedule of private members' business over the next few weeks when the doll resumes is Fianna Fáil up first. They're not going to table a motion of confidence of government. And then after that, Sinn Féin, or sorry, Solidarity first and Sinn Féin afterwards. Sinn Féin have kind of let people know uh, under the radar in the last weeks they won't be moving a motion. But again, if you're in government, do you trust that? Solidarity, I was speaking to a couple of people yesterday earlier saying that they weren't minded to, but again, things can change. So that's what we're looking at in the next few weeks. So we'd have, in the middle of an election campaign, we'd have uh, the Union Jack being taken down in Brussels and Boris Johnson presumably, you know, speaking from some podium somewhere at 11 o'clock on the 11pm, I think it'll be on the, yeah, this on the is 31st a, of this January. This is all depending, I mean, dependent on, on this theorising we've been doing here coming to pass that, yes, you know, and if you are Fine Gael and Brexit has been your, your, your one of your strongest points and you are as he Taoiseach is doing, consistently referencing the team of the team of himself, Simon Covey and Helen McEntee, you know, how do you have Brexit as a backdrop to your election? Will you let Brexit happen while you're campaigning? Or just as you're about to campaign? And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to Fiak and thanks to Newton for joining us earlier. Uh, thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Acast, or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. And you can find me at hlinahan on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.